Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. The past few weeks we've been looking at the book of Genesis, and particularly as we go through this series, uh, looking at Genesis 1 to, uh, to Genesis 3. The last few weeks, we looked at the fact of how God created the entire universe in uh, six literal days, and he rested on the seventh day. And then last week, we saw of how when God created man out of the dust of the ground, it was a perfect world, where even the, the whole surface of the land was supplied with water uh, in a continuous way, unlike now when uh, there's rain and some areas tend to get flooded and other areas get no water. And, and so it wasn't a time when there was thorns and thistles and so on because the curse hadn't come. At that time, you know, God had provided a perfect world for man to live in. And what we'll continue to see again is God's bountiful provision for man in the Garden of Eden of his care and of his love uh, toward man and the kind of world that God had created for man. And, and, and really, I think even the bigger picture as we go through this, you know, some of you have commented of how this has been so encouraging as we've been going through uh, the creation account. And I think part of the reason is because often we, you know, hear it in Sunday school or if you've been in any kind of Christian or church setting, you would have heard of it, and you know we usually have a cursory glance of it. But as we get into God's Word and we look at the truths of what's here, what it reveals to us is not just the origins of how everything began, of how the world began, and how man was created. Yes, it speaks to us of all that, but even beyond that, it sets the foundation for the rest of the Bible and even for our life. And so that's what we'll see, even some of that, even this morning, as we go through this passage from verses 8 through to 17 of chapter 2. This morning, the, the, the focus of this passage is really on the Garden of Eden, and just uh, different things that happen in the Garden of Eden. And remember, uh, chapter 2 is not a contradiction to chapter 1. Uh, But chapter 2, verse 4 onwards, it's really after God says, okay, six days I created the world, seventh day I rested. Chapter 2, verse 4 onwards till the end of the chapter is a zoom in on day 6. So it's going back. It's it's almost like the newspaper headlines where you get some details and then finally, uh, or just a cursory overview, and then you have all the details. And so that's what's happening here. So seven days this has happened. Now it's a uh, zoom in on day six and what are the details that happened on day six and how from there uh, what happened to the rest of the world and mankind. So keep that in mind. And by way of outline, as we look at specifically the Garden of Eden, uh, I've got three points. Um, firstly, we, uh, let's just look at God's abundant provision for man in supplying a bounty of trees. Now, verses 8 and 9. Let me just read verse 8 first. 
Genesis 2, verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And the Lord God. So, so it's sequential. After God created man on day six, the next thing that God did was plant a garden in Eden. God created man and he was brought into a perfect world. Now God is going to make a home for man where man can dwell and he can carry out all that God has tasked him to do. And really, it's also going to be the place where man will commune with God. It says that God planted a garden in Eden. So, so the idea is this, Eden is the big area. And God plants a garden in Eden, which is a smaller area in this big area of Eden. And this garden, the, the, the word, it has the idea of a large enclosed area, uh, enclosed garden with some kind of a uh, barrier or some kind of a wall. So think of this garden not like your you know, backyard garden, like a small thing like that, but more like a, like a botanical garden, uh, you know, a large orchard or some, something like that, a, a much bigger place with uh, perhaps hedges or trees enclosing this area off. This was the garden in Eden. Now, the word Eden is related to a term that means delight or pleasure. And the word garden, it's, it's, the, it's translated in the, um, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, that's the Septuagint. This word garden is translated as paradisos, which we would translate in the English as paradise. So in a sense, this was a, gar- this was a garden, you could, you could call it as a, a paradise of delight, or a delightful paradise. You know, it, it should invoke pictures of this idyllic garden, of, of really paradise. This garden was a paradise from the hand of God. And notice it says there, so God planted a garden in Eden, this delightful paradise, in the east. Now, this, now as much as it's not, it might not seem as significant right now, as you go through the book of Genesis, this um, movement towards the east becomes quite significant. See, because... When you come to Genesis 3, when man sins, and then God forbids man to enter the garden which is in the east. So now it's become a forbidden place. And so in the book of Genesis, when you see people moving towards the east, there's a sense in which they're looking for Eden, this place that God has now forbidden man to enter. And it's, it's a way of saying that they are moving away from God. So that's, that's a significant small detail as you read through the book of Genesis that you will see. Wherever you see, uh, you, you know, 
We touched on this when I preached from the Tower of Babel maybe two or three years ago, when the people are moving towards the east. That's the significance of it, that they're moving away from God and perhaps in some sense looking for Eden as well. So anyway, verse 8 then goes on to say that there he put the man whom he had formed. So think about this. Man was formed first when the garden did not exist. Then the garden is created, and then man is put in the garden. So while the whole earth is perfect, you know, man would have understood, oh, hang on, there's a difference between the the rest of the lands and this particular garden. There's a huge difference here knowing that God especially planted this garden, this paradise garden of delight for man to dwell in. You know, man would have understood at least this. Oh, my creator cares for me. And he has provided this extravagant home, this wonderful home for me, and he has provided for me uh, abundantly in this home. Now, verse 9 gives us some details about how God planted the garden in Eden. Again, it's it's kind of like he's, you know, Moses has summarized the point. Now he's going to give you some details about that. How did God plant this Eden? And remember again, just to be clear, this is not something that's taking place on the third day when God made the trees and the plants and all that. That was already done. This is day six. And so this reference to God planting this garden is also taking place on day six. So let's just look at uh, verse nine. And out of the ground, the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In order to make the garden, notice it says there, out of the ground, God makes every tree. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So first of all, the the trees that were in the garden were the best looking trees. I mean, absolutely beautiful trees. You know, sometimes you can have trees, but, you know, there might not be anything particularly visually appealing about it. And remember, the whole earth is already full of plants and trees. But in this garden particularly, only the best-looking trees are made. You know, we see certain trees in parks, and we, you know, as we go to some botanical garden, and we say, wow, this is just beautiful here. But, you know, those trees are us looking at trees in a fallen world. So you can imagine in, a, in an unfallen world, when God himself created the best-looking trees to come up in the garden, what kind of place it would have been. It would have been visually stunning. It really would have been paradise. And it would have been significantly better than any of the world's best parks and gardens right now. 
And second, it also says that every tree there was good for food. So it's not just the best-looking trees, but all these trees were good for food. So these beautiful trees with, with the best colors and the smells and, the, uh, you know, and even the food, it, it would have been the best tasting. In fact, even the, uh, perhaps even the fruit that came from these trees would have had even different textures just because God could do that so that man could enjoy it. You know, fruits and vegetables and flowers and leaves that could be eaten, having all kinds of textures and tastes. This is God's abundant provision for man. And then Moses tells us then, with all these beautiful trees, all trees beautiful, all trees good for food, he points to two particular trees that were in the center of the garden. Look at verse 9 again, the second half. It says there that the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's two special trees in the middle of this garden. First is the tree of life. And the basic idea of this tree of life is that anyone who would regularly eat from the fruit of this tree of life would be enabled to live forever. That their life would be sustained forever by this tree as they kept eating from the fruit of this tree. In fact, after the fall in Genesis 3.22, we read that Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden and God banned them from entering the garden. Why? so that they would not be able to access the tree of life and thereby live forever in their sinful condition. So the tree of life was the means by which man could live eternally. Now the interesting thing is this. In the book of Proverbs, the tree of life is used metaphorically. You read in Proverbs 3.18, where wisdom, which is personified as a woman, and here it's, uh, wisdom is talked about as being like the tree of life. And what it's showing is that, you know, just like wisdom makes life joyful and wholesome and fruitful, that's what the tree of life did. Proverbs 11.30, it talks about the fruit of a righteous life is compared to a tree of life. Yeah, a righteous person, the fruit that come out of that person, that's equivalent to what the tree of life gave, that in the sense that it was life-giving. That a righteous person, as the person lives righteously, the fruit that comes gives life to everything around, just like the tree of life. Proverbs 13.12, where it talks about a long-awaited desire being fulfilled. So essentially it's this, the the energy and the vitality that that you get from it, where you're waiting for something and it gets fulfilled. That energy and the, oh yes, now now this desire is fulfilled. That energy and vitality that you get is compared to eating the fruit of the tree of life. 
where you'd be energized and vitalized. Proverbs 15.4, where it's compared to, the tree of life is compared to gentleness in the sense of, you know, when someone's being gentle with another person, it, is, it again brings healing or it's life-giving to others as opposed to destructive to other relationships. So, so here's the thing. As you, as you see these verses in Proverbs, and, and you, it gives us the impression that the tree of life provided continued rejuvenation of life. It provided a life that is energized, physically and spiritually speaking. In other words, the tree of life provided the enjoyment of a fruitful life, or the the blessed life, the enjoyment of the blessed life, that fullness of life. That's what the tree of life provided. So now when you come back to when you come back to Genesis 2 and you read in verse 8, where it very specifically says, the Lord God, he himself, planted all the beautiful trees, including this tree. So what it points to is that God, the ultimate source of life, he's the one who also created this tree to sustain life. In other words, ultimately, the life that comes from this tree is life coming from God himself. This was God's ordained means by which the life of man could be energized and invigorated physically and spiritually speaking as he took part from the fruit of this tree. And in this way, as, he, as man continued to take part from the fruit of this tree, his life was continually sustained. And if he continued to eat from that, it would be sustained forever. Now one thing to understand is this. This tree was not a magical tree, where its fruit you know, had some inherent magical properties. But this was the way in which God ordained it that if man ate from this tree, his life would be rejuvenated and sustained physically and spiritually speaking. And as this tree stood in the very center of the garden, it was a symbol of life. You know, a symbol of, of God's life right there in the middle of the garden. The life that God gives. Right in the middle of the garden, this tree of life served as a reminder to man that only God grants life, even the eternal blessed life. That man is dependent on God for his life. That man cannot have his existence apart from God. And have man lived by depending on God and living according to God's ways, things would go well for him. So that was the tree of life. But there was also another tree in the middle of the garden. And that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
the, the word knowledge, it, it's not just mental knowledge, but it can also have the idea of experiential knowledge. We'll come back to this tree in a few verses, but in a nutshell, this is what the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil provided, an experiential knowledge of evil. We'll look at that a bit more in a few verses. But again, just I want to remind you, this is again not a magical tree. But God ordained it that if man took part from the fruit of this tree, he would have an experiential knowledge of evil. You know, one commentator explains it well. Uh, He states, quote, It does not make the trees magical, for the Old Testament has no room for blind forces, only for the acts of God. But these trees were rather sacramental in the broad sense of the word, in that they are the physical means of a spiritual transaction. The fruit, not in its own right, but as appointed to a function and carrying a word from God, confronts man with God's will. I guess you could think of it like this. You know, when we take part in... um, in the Lord's table. It's a physical act, right? As we take part uh, in the bread and the cup. And in fact, when it was first instituted, it wasn't uh, just a small piece of bread. It was part of the entire meal. And so at that time, as people ate of this meal, they would have been refreshed, physically speaking. But at the same time, it's also a means of being spiritually refreshed as we take part in the emblems. But there's nothing magical about it. That's just how God has ordained it. Now, at the same time, if anyone takes part in the Lord's table, you know, while living in unrepentant sin, a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, and they take part... Uh, in the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about that warns against taking part in the Lord's table that way. Because some have even died by taking part in the Lord's table. So people are refreshed physically speaking, people are refreshed um, spiritually speaking, and if they take part in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, people can even die. But there's nothing magical about the element of the bread and the wine. Absolutely nothing magical about it. But this is how God has ordained it. So similarly, the true two trees had its functions. And depending on what man did with those trees, it either rejuvenated their life, physically and spiritually speaking, or it resulted in death. Because that is how God ordained these two trees to be. Now moving on, there's more description about God's abundant provision. And here we see God's provision for man in terms of rivers and riches from verses 10 to 14. Let's just read verse 10 first. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four 
rivers. Now remember last week we saw that the way God provided water in the pre-fall world was through an underground system, an underground stream of water. And so even for this river, the supply of water didn't come from rain because rain came only after the fall. The supply of water for this river also came from this underwater uh, stream. This underwater stream, it provided a continuous supply of water which would probably come out through some opening in Eden, like a spring. And then it flowed through as a massive river in the garden. And as the river flowed through the garden, then it finally divided into four rivers, supplying four different areas. Now you think, but why does the river divide like this and you know, go into four distinct areas? Well, Ezekiel gives us some clues about the Garden of Eden, about the geography of the Garden of Eden. The, the middle section of Ezekiel 28, it's a description about, uh, you know, it's talking about Satan when he was in the garden, and perhaps we'll visit this passage when we get to Genesis 3, perhaps. But for now, just concentrate on the description of the Garden of Eden. Look at the first part of Ezekiel 28, verse 13. It says, you were in Eden, the Garden of God. Okay, already the name here for Eden is, it's called the Garden of God, like God's special place, God's special garden, a, a garden that, you know, God has special significance for. And then look at the first part of Ezekiel 24, verse 14. You were an anointed guardian cherub, I placed you, and you were on the, what? The holy mountain of God. So you were in Eden, the garden of God. You were on the holy mountain of God. Or in other words, the garden of Eden, which is also the garden of God, is on top of a mountain. So picture this. You have the garden of Eden on the top of a mountain, and from the uh, underground, water spouts out as a spring through an opening somewhere in Eden. It flows through the garden, and as the river flows down, it divides into four rivers. And so that's how you get your four rivers. It must have been a massive spring gushing out of Eden, and then flowing through flowing through the garden, and then again becoming four rivers. I mean, think about it. On the one sense, you, you get the idea of, okay, this massive river flowing through the garden, making everything in the garden flourish and making everything beautiful. And then it divides again into another four massive rivers. They're not small little trickles or small little tributaries. No, these are big rivers then supplied various lands. And eventually what would happen is these, these waters, these rivers would go down into the sea, and then from the sea it would get into the underwater stream, and then again it would come up in Eden, and then it would flow out, and that's how it was. There was no 
It was not on top through rain, but it was below going like this. That was the pre-fall way in which God provided water in this world. Now, verse 11 onwards provides description about the four different rivers. And these really are the, the great rivers of the ancient world. Verse 11 says, the name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. So the first river that's coming from the river that's flowing in Eden is Pishon. And what does it do? It waters the whole land of Havilah. Now, it's difficult to uh, you know, identify these rivers and places mentioned here because remember, Moses, as he's writing this and he's giving all this instruction that God has given to him to the people of Israel, this is post-flood. So the topography of the land at this point would have significantly changed because of the flood. Even the rivers would have either moved or perhaps even disappeared. Even some of the rivers like Tigris and Euphrates, whether or not he's referring to the same rivers that we have today is difficult to tell because it doesn't match the, the geography of the land that is mentioned here. Regardless, what we can say is this, that as God revealed all this to Moses, Moses would have at least had a rough idea that this is where the rivers were and this is where the regions were. Okay, so verse 11, Pishon River waters the whole land of Havilah, wherever that was. Verse 12 says, the gold in this region was good. I love that. You know, I mean, most people would say, yeah, gold is good. Why would gold be bad? But, but I, I think it probably means that this was very good gold in the sense of high-quality gold, not mixed with, uh, you know, other stones and, and metals. You know, maybe it was found in its purest form. Then there's mention of bedellium. Now, we can't be sure about what this is, but Numbers 11.7 says, manna that God provided as food for the children of Israel as they were in the wilderness. In Numbers 11.7, it says that manna looked like bedellium. And so this is probably, bedellium is probably a precious stone of some kind. You know, some say it was probably pearls or something like that. And then also in this land was the onyx stone, another precious stone. So the idea here is this, that God decorated the world at the time with gold and precious stones as well. It's not just plants and trees and animals and rivers, but the land was full of precious stones and gold, gold in its purest form or whatever good gold was. Now, verse 13 says, the, the name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Now, again, this, there's no river like this that we can trace that watered the land of Cush. Verse 14 then says, the, the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria 
and the fourth river is Euphrates. And remember, at this time, pre-flood time, Assyria didn't exist. So again, perhaps Moses is writing this to say that, the, that these particular rivers were roughly in this area. So what can we take away from this section? Here's, here's one thing I want you to think about. Water is also, flowing water is a source of life. And when you think about it, this abundant source of life, which is water, it starts from Eden, the Garden of God. And then it breaks into four rivers supplying the different lands. You know, one commentator stated, the rivers which bring fertility, i.e. blessing, to the world have their origin in the river which bring fertility, i.e. blessing, to the garden of God. So Eden really, when you think about this, Eden is, is the main center, you know, on top of the mountain. You could even say the, the, the capital of the world, the, the, the place of blessing and life. And that blessing and life then flows out from Eden into the four corners of the world. And, and that blessing and life affects the rest of the world as well. And it is in this center point of God's blessing and life that God has placed man. You know, God didn't in any way not provide for man. In fact, his providence is in abundance. You know, God didn't have to provide every kind of beautiful looking tree in the garden. He didn't have to provide every tree that was good for food. He could have put in there ugly trees, or maybe just one tree, and just eat from this tree. He didn't have to provide a large water source which would make the land so fertile, and it was so much in abundance that it flowed out to the four corners of the world, making those lands fertile and bless the other lands as well. He didn't have to decorate the lands with precious stones. But that is exactly what God did. He did all these things. He didn't have to, but he did. And what all this pointed to was God's close presence and blessing. See, God's provision for man at this time wasn't, you know, just enough provision, but it was abundant provision, more than he could ever want or need. He would never have any lack or need. God provided all this abundantly so that man could enjoy it and live in sinless fellowship with God. Adam was truly placed in paradise, the place of all delights. You know, now the Israelites, as they're hearing about the abundance that God had provided, including the riches and even the blessing from Eden flowing to the rest of the world, you know, this much would have been clear to them. 
that the creator God, who is also their God, is the one who provides life and riches for everyone. That their God is not just the provider and God of Israel, he's the provider and the one who blesses the whole entire world. And so Israel shouldn't fear the other nations around them. They only need to trust in their God, who is overall and the one who truly provides for everyone. And we can say this as well, even for us, that it is this very same God who provides for us. He hasn't changed. It is God who provides for us physically, and it is him who provides for us spiritually. And we need to remind ourselves of this again and again and again, so that we don't get tempted to think, we don't get tempted to rely on something else or even someone else for our needs to be ultimately met. So that was God's abundant provision of trees and rivers and riches for man. Now we'll look at, lastly, man's obedient service to God in verses 15 to 17. Man's obedient service to God. Now verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, verse 8 has already mentioned that God has put the man in the garden. But the word that is used here for put, it's a different word. It's actually a word from the word for rest. So it could be literally translated, the Lord God took the man and caused him to rest in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So it's really hinting at the fact that this is what man was made for, to to rest in God and enjoy God and and serve him with all that God has given him. We we saw the implications of all that a few weeks ago as we looked at the rest of God and the rest that he provides. And so even on the sixth day, it's it's hinting at that. This This is what man was also made for, and this rest will be fully realized on the seventh day. And and look at this, God caused man to rest in the garden, not to slack off, not to sit on his bottom to do nothing. No, you know, God caused him to rest, to work and keep the garden. See, work uh, wasn't something that came as a result of the curse. As much as it might feel that way, no, it's a God-given task. This is before the curse and before the fall. And the, and the word here for work here can be translated as serve. But you say, okay, so how is man supposed to work and, and, and serve in the garden? Well, he doesn't need to water the plants. God has taken care of that. He doesn't need to till the ground because God has taken care of that because 
uh, God has provided food in abundance, so he doesn't need to till the ground or do anything like that. So it's work, I suspect it might be something like, you know, shaping and pruning the branches of the trees. You know, uh, directing plants in a certain direction so it doesn't get crowded perhaps. You know, uh, maybe bringing some of those precious stones and decorating the garden. It would have been something like that. But because this was work before the fall, and there were no thorns and thistles or weeds, work was a delight. Work was restful. Work was pure joy while taking care of the garden and serving God. You know, I guess the closest thing to this is this. I know some of you like to clean your houses as a way of enjoyment and rest. I know some of you like to cook as a way of enjoyment and rest. I don't fall into either of those categories. But, but you, you, you can at least get that idea that you know, any and all kind of work before the fall was enjoyable. It was not laborious. It was not toilsome. It wasn't difficult. And it was a way of serving God. The, the other word there, the, uh, keep, that's also an interesting word. It, it can mean to tend, but it can also mean to guard or to protect. Now, what's interesting about these terms is to work and to keep, which you can translate it as to serve and guard, were also terms that were used by Moses to describe the work of the priests in the tabernacle and the temple. Look at Numbers 3, 7, and 8. And they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation, just talking about the priests, before the tent of meeting as they minister or as they serve at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Or 1 Chronicles 23.32. Thus, again, speaking about the priests, thus they were to keep charge of the tent of the meeting and the sanctuary and to attend to the sons of Aaron, their brothers, for the service or work of the house of the Lord. So this combination of work and keep, or serve and guard, it's priestly language. In fact, what is even more striking is, as you look look into it, is how the Garden of Eden has many connections to the tabernacle and the temple. In Genesis 3.24, we see that the entrance to the Garden of Eden is on the east side, where the cherubim are guarding on the east side. That's the entrance to the Garden of Eden. The very entry to the tabernacle, too, was from the east side. The veil in front of the Holy of Holies was image of the cherubim guarding, invoking images of the cherubim guarding the garden. 
Exodus 25.7 talks about the onyx stone that we just read about and other gemstones that were seen on the ephod and the breastplate of priests. Gold that we read about was also used in many of the items in the tabernacle. In fact, 1 Kings 6.21 says the, the, the inside of the temple was overlaid with gold. The tree of life that was in the garden was represented by the lampstand in the shape of a tree where the central shaft you know, showed the main bark of the tree and the three branches on this side and three branches on this side showed the branches of the tree and it symbolized the tree of life. In the temple walls, 1 Kings 6.18 and 1 Kings 6.29 tells us, it was engraved with pictures of flowers and trees. And then lastly, just like the temple and tabernacle were places where God would meet with his people, the Garden of Eden was also the place where God uniquely met with man and talked with man and walked with man. And so what these connections show is that both the tabernacle and the temple, they were trying to bring in reminders of the unfallen world where, of that special place where God met with man. And really the implication then in Genesis 2 is this, with all the connections to the tabernacle and the priest and the temple, is that this garden too was a sacred place. It's almost like a, a, a garden temple. In other words, the garden wasn't just a big botanical garden or orchard it w- where it was beautiful and Adam got food and so on and so forth. It was also a place of worship. It was a place where Adam, by taking care of the garden, would be serving God and worshiping him. It was a place where he would commune with God and enjoy God and worship him. It was a place where God, in a very special way, would manifest his presence. And when when Adam was placed in the garden to serve and, and guard the garden, you can understand the reason why then. God is really saying to Adam, This is my garden. Remember in Ezekiel 28, the garden of God? This is my garden. This is my special garden that I have made where you can serve me and worship me. This is the place that I'm going to walk with you. This is the place where you will commune with me. This is the place where my word will be kept. This is sacred ground. And so your responsibility, Adam, as I place you in this place, is to take care of it and guard this place, this sacred place. And so in light of this, God gives a command to Adam. It's a positive followed by a negative. Verse 16 says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden. So the positive is this. Eat of every tree of the garden. 
There's no limitation whatsoever to how much food Adam could eat from a particular tree. Or for that matter, how many trees Adam could eat from. Every tree from the garden was freely available for food. You know, it's like the, the, the best and the largest buffet in the world, of the best vegetables and the fruits any man has known. And God is saying, it's all for you. It's all freely available to you. And this again speaks of God's abundant provision and care for man. You know, every day was, you know, as, he, as he's in this garden, even from the time he wakes up, is this elaborate spread of food, freely available. Eat from anywhere, everywhere. Eat from every tree. Adam, you can partake of it freely with the exception of one tree. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. In this entire botanical paradise, there's only one tree that Adam was forbidden to eat from, the tree of good and evil. In fact, it's very strong negation in the Hebrew. It's more the sense of you must never eat from it. See, eating of the fruit of the tree of good and evil would give man an experiential knowledge of evil. I mean, let me try and explain that a little bit more. In Deuteronomy 1.39, there's description of little children, of having no knowledge of good and evil. Or in other words, they are innocent. So when man was created, he was created innocent. In fact, he didn't even have that sin nature that we all have when we are born. That came after the fall. So, Man was created originally innocent, and the only thing man would have known experientially was goodness through the goodness of God. He would have really known this experientially, but that's all he knew. Nothing but goodness that came from God. Now, man would certainly at least conceptually or mentally would have known about what evil is as well. Uh, you know, just like uh, he would have known a lot of other concepts. You say, why? Because remember, from day one, when man's created, he's not learning language, right? God has already given him the gift of language and vocabulary that has concepts so that he's able to communicate with God with words from day one. So he's not like saying something to God, or God is saying, and he's trying to figure out, oh, what does that word mean? I know I'm speaking these words, but I don't understand what I'm saying. No, from day one, he had the vocabulary, and the concepts were already there. That's how God had gifted language to man. So conceptually, or at least mentally, he would have an idea about evil. But experientially, the only thing he knew was goodness as it came from God. 
And if he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would gain a practical knowledge of evil by experiencing evil firsthand himself. You know, one theologian put it this way in talking about what happened after eating the forbidden fruit. He says this, quote, Adam did indeed attain to the knowledge of good and evil, but he attained it from the standpoint of becoming evil and remembering the good in contrast to the evil he performed. He gained the experiential knowledge of good and evil from the evil side, end quote. And here's one thing we need to understand. While man was created innocent, he wasn't ignorant. He understood what it meant to obey God and disobey God. Because that's why God is giving man a command that you can do this, but you cannot do this. So man clearly understood that. And so really the the tree of good and evil, which is also in the middle of the garden, like the tree of life, which gave vitality to life, spiritually and physically speaking. This tree was also in the middle. And it was a symbol, really, of man's limitation and even dependence on God. See, you know, sometimes we think, oh, that tree would have been such a temptation. You know, God has said, oh, don't eat of it. And then, you know, usually when you say, don't do this, you know, we'll be tempted. Now, that's because we're thinking in a post-fall world. This is pre-fall. There was no sin nature in him. So the the tree, it it wasn't a matter of temptation as much as the tree was a test of man's obedience. See, to not eat from the tree is a way of saying, God is God and I am not. God has set limitations and boundaries for me Now, will I obey God in this regard? Will I trust God when he says, this is a forbidden tree, I must not eat from it? Will I trust that he's not depriving me of some good? But will I trust that he is saying this for my own good? I mean, think about it. Man wasn't created to handle evil. Because when man experiences evil, finally when he disobeys and he experiences it, it leads to his ruin and, and his death even. And everything around him also gets ruined. But who's the only one who can handle evil? God. God is, the, God is so supreme that he can manipulate evil And he can use evil for his glory and for the good of his people. God can do that because God is God. But man cannot do that. Man cannot handle evil. He was not created for that. So not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was saying, I recognize that God is God. I have limitations. 
I have boundaries given to me for my own good, and I'm going to trust you with this, God. That was the purpose of that tree. And really, it was even an expression of worship, recognizing, God, this is who you are, and I fully submit to that. Now, the last part of verse 17, it gives the consequence of what will happen if man disobeyed. It says, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we saw this term, in the day. Uh, we saw it in Genesis 2, 4. Uh, and we looked at the fact that it's a Hebrew idiom to say, when. Let me just take you to one other example so it's fixed in your mind that it's a Hebrew idiom of when. 1 Kings 2.37. Solomon is speaking to a person named Shimei, and this is what he says. For on the day, it's the same phrase, or in the day, you go out and cross the brook, brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. And you know what happened? This person, Shimei, he actually crossed that brook Kidron. But he didn't die that particular day. But he did get killed sometime after that. Why? Because what Solomon was saying was simply this, that when you cross that brook, not that particular day, but when you cross that brook, then you will surely die. And it's the same thing that is being said here by God. That if you disobey, and, or when you disobey, you will die. doesn't mean that he will necessarily die on that particular day, but that death will surely come. And we know this, that when man disobeyed and he ate of that fruit, he was alienated from God. And there was spiritual death, but that physical death only came sometime later. Just one more thing to note here. And it's that, you know, what you see here is that God is saying, you're going to die if you eat from this fruit, not because there's something poisonous about this fruit, but it was disregarding and disobeying God's word. Just turn to Deuteronomy 8.3. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. And Moses says, talking about God, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I know it sounds familiar because Jesus uses that same text of scripture when he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness in the New Testament. Now, what is this saying? What this is saying is that the way man lives is by keeping 
God's word, by living according to his word. And when man goes against God's word and God's ways, it leads to death. So ultimately, it's not bread that gives life in an ultimate sense. It's the word of God. As we live according to God's word, as we are obedient to God's word and live according to God's ways, there's life and there's fullness of life. But when we go away from that, there is death. When we disregard it, when we disobey God's word, there is death. Because God is the source of life. And his his word, therefore, is also life imparting. So we go from that source, it results in death. You know, one of the things that the world would say is that God is too restrictive. Oh, if we want to enjoy life, ignore God, ignore his word, and, and life will be great. You know, but as we look at the Bible and as we've seen today, trusting God and obeying his commands, they're not oppressive. They're not restrictive. They are for our own good. In fact, as we obey God and live according to his word, it leads to fullness of life. It leads to joy. And you know, what we'll see is in chapter 3, that man will still rebel against God. And he will eat from that forbidden fruit. But God, in his kindness and his love, sent Jesus, the second person of who he is, in the fullness of time at a point in history to come into this sin-cursed world for the rebellion of his people so that they could be saved, so that that relationship could be restored, so that his people could have life again. And Jesus then rose from the dead and he has returned to the Father. But you know what? One day Jesus will return. And because of all that Jesus has done, heaven itself, what we call as the new heaven, will come down on earth. The new Jerusalem, as we read this morning, is a city laden with gold and precious stones, just like in the garden. The new Jerusalem will be the capital of the world where blessings and life flow from this center point to the rest of the world, just like in Eden. There will be a river of life flowing from the throne of God in this new Jerusalem, just like the river in the garden. And there will be the tree of life in this city, just like it was in Eden. And all those who belong to Christ and have submitted to Christ and are walking according to his ways, we will be there 
with him. And we will recognize God for who he is. And we will work and we will serve him and worship him. And Jesus that day will reign in a very physical sense as king over this entire world. That's what we're looking forward to. And this Eden and this garden is a small glimpse of what's going to happen right in the end and what's awaiting us. What a wonderful God we have. Let's pray together. What can we say, Father, for all you have done for us and all that you will do for us? It's not because of our merit. We were rebellious people, had nothing to do with you, wanted nothing to do with you. Yet in your graciousness and kindness, you gave us life. And you keep us in this world, and you guard us in this world. And we know that what's awaiting us is this wonderful reality of what Eden was like, and even more. And we look forward to that day. Help us to be a people who's awaiting the return of Christ. But even as we do that, we pray that we would be faithful to live according to your ways, faithful to live according to your word, which gives us life. It is not restricted. It is for our own good. And it rejuvenates us. Help us to be faithful this way and help us, as a result, to be a light in this place and that many people would come to know you as a result. Thank you, Father, for your goodness towards us. And we look forward to when Jesus will come and reign again. And it's in his name we give you thanks in the praise. Amen.